I think the greatest compliment you can give a designer is when you see a project of theirs, it looks like them. You can tell it's their project without seeing anything written about them. And it's because they have such a strong point of view. And that's one of the things in our industry. If you do have a strong design point of view and people can tell your work even without reading that it's yours, it's very compelling. That in and of itself attracts the right clients for you. Welcome to episode 87 of the AFT Construction Podcast, and I'm your host, Brad Levitt. And in this episode, we speak with Jennifer Glenn. And Jennifer has a co-founder with her, Barbara, and they have an amazing design firm in Northern California. And I really love this topic because Jennifer's background, she worked for a $10 billion a year company and did the marketing. She worked on understanding your ideal client and how to break that down and how essential that was to her scope of work. And now as a small business owner of two, how important is PR? You know, why is it important that we understand our ideal client? How do we break that down? How do we find them? How do we work with them and network with them? And in addition to that, she also teaches at the community college in her local area. So many of us have gone to college and you learn about the business, but you don't learn how to run the business. And this is super key, understanding the ins and outs of a design business or a construction business or architecture firm. This was so key. We had an amazing conversation. She had so much to offer. You'll love this episode. So without further ado, let's get started. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast, and we have Jennifer Glenn with us today, who is partner of Space 10 Interiors. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me today. Very excited to have you. I know you have an amazing design firm there in Northern California, and we spoke. I know you're in Bay with one of my good friends, Jamie Verdura with Verdura Construction. You're not too far. Uh, but I wanted to kick this off, Jennifer, because you have some amazing experience. Although you have a design firm that we're going to speak about here shortly, you come from an amazing background. You know, you work for a company that did $10 billion a year. You know, you ran their marketing brand strategies. And now here you are as a small business owner. So, you know, talk about just that major difference in the marketing mentality for a $10 billion firm as opposed to what you're doing now. It's large uh, and very different. And then yet it's not. It's got some of the same elements. When you're working for a large corporation, you're usually dealing with a large amount of brands under one umbrella. And so brand architecture becomes a big part of how you communicate to customers. And when you're dealing with kind of a small company, your design firm or a construction firm, usually have one brand. (laughs) And usually the amount of stakeholders you have is much smaller. So in our instance, it's myself and my business partner, Barbara Lavinia. We really are the only two stakeholders in our company. And so developing a brand managing your brand is much easier when you're a small company than actually when you're a large company. It's interesting. So, but you said a term, I haven't heard it said that way. And you said brand architecture, right? And so Mm -hmm. my understanding, if you're working with a big firm, as you mentioned, there's going to be, you're going to break this down. You're going to have different strategies for different elements or brands of the company. So that architecture or, or blueprint, if you will, is important because you have to understand the emphasis on each area. Right. So if you think about a large company, let's just take um, Alphabet, for example, which owns Google, YouTube, um, Waze. They own many other companies that I can't think of. All those are unique brands, but they all sit under the umbrella of Alphabet now. Uh, And determining how that architecture looks and how you treat it In other words, at some companies, you have one brand and they have sub-brands underneath them. They're not their own unique brands like, let's say, Google and YouTube, for example. 
and so those are different and you treat them differently. And the visual representation of those is different than if you were all the same brand with just different divisions underneath it. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just a different philosophy in how you manage your brands within an organization. So when you're small, you really, unless you are like yourself, you have your construction company and now you have this podcast, right? Those can be unique brands or they can be the same brand with just a sub brand underneath it. So it's sort of up to you as a company and what you feel is to your competitive advantage, how you organize your brands. So how important is that when you start thinking about branding and marketing? Okay, it it makes sense when you're working with large companies, as you mentioned, and there's, you know, Google and YouTube, and they have these different avenues. Yeah, and you can sit down, and you can strategize, but as a small company, here you are now, Space 10 Interiors, it's Mm -hmm. you and Barbara. And so with that brand architecture, how are you breaking that down to your level? Do you break that down to say, these are really the scopes of work that we want to perform, that we know we're good at. So we're going to market accordingly. Or how detailed do you get in that brand architecture at your level? So for a small firm, really brand architecture isn't as important as your kind of positioning statement for your firm, your mission and vision statement for your firm, your ideal client for your firm. Those things become much more important than the actual brand architecture itself, because you really are dealing with one brand. Um, So in that sense, when we started Space 10 Interiors, we really focused on who did we want our ideal client to be? Uh, How would we describe them? personality traits would these ideal clients have? Where would they live? What kind of projects would they bring to us? And then from there, we sort of built what was the vision for our company and what was our mission in the world of design and how did our ideal client fit into that? And from there, we then built marketing strategies around that. It's fascinating because so I just had Jeff Eccles on. He's from Indianapolis and here you are in California, Jennifer. And his, when he spoke about marketing, he was so precise in saying, you have to understand your ideal client. Mm. You have to understand. And even to the level, as you mentioned, is it, uh, you know, is my ideal client a married couple? Is it a single father who's been recently divorced and now he's relocated? Is it a 10-year-old son? And he said, get down as detailed as you can. And as you mentioned, you talked about what's their personality? You know, what's their financial demographic? Where do they live geographically? What type of projects do you want to do? You know, explain why that's so important to really understand your ideal client as you're building that marketing strategy. It is incredibly important. Uh, very often when you ask people who their ideal client is, They can't tell you, they can't articulate it. And it's incredibly important because if you can narrow down and determine what you want to do, what you like to do, what you're best at, and what that client looks like when you're working at your best, it really hones in your marketing strategy. And it it allows you to let go of some marketing strategies that really aren't going to best suit you. And it's hard this day and age. There's so much out there and everyone tells you you should be doing all these things in marketing. Otherwise, you're not relevant or you won't grow your business. And simply, if you focus on your ideal client and then tailor your strategies to your ideal client, you will be successful and it will be easier. <laughs> You'll spend less money doing it and it will be more fun. And more financially beneficial. I love that you shared that. It's interesting because when we were speaking, just as you mentioned, when you start thinking about in my past, if I could break it down and what he said is is exactly what you're saying, Jennifer, is that 
in one category, you break down the client that wasn't great, right? So this is the client that we had a lot of issues with or the project that wasn't successful. Here's A, B, C, D, E of why it was not successful. But now on the successful side, this is what the client, this is their demographic. Maybe they had already built a home and they're building a second home, right? And so I know for me and my experience, my clients that are, have built a home already, they're a lot more savvy to understand the process. It's a, lot, it's a lot easier for me, even though I feel we're more refined, I could deliver expectations they can understand because they've been through it. You know, it's really hard to anticipate every single little thing that comes up in construction and design when they've never built a home. And it's hard to convey that. And especially in pre-construction before you break ground. So understanding that now, if I market to that, I'm going to essentially hopefully bring in those second time clients, those second time builders. So when you're thinking about how, and, and before we get into space 10 a little bit and some of the things you're doing, when you're thinking about your history working for these big firms such as Google or YouTube, how how valuable is it for us to understand that they really are breaking down to that level their ideal client? Because everyone has an ideal client. You know, Nike does or Apple or Louis Vuitton. And so they really know who they're going after. If you look at the marketing strategy of, say, Lululemon, for example, which is a really great brand, and most people on the street can describe who shops there. Like it's, yeah. it's, you can visualize the person that shops there. Um, it's the same for us at Space 10 Interiors. We, I know pretty quickly when I get on the phone with a potential new client, I have a series of questions that I go through every single time I'm pre-qualifying someone. I have the same list. And by the time I get to question four or five, I sort of know if their project and them as a person is the right fit for us. And I think when you're kind of looking at your ideal client and thinking about the kind of firm that you want to have, it is incredibly important to talk about, you know, are they first-time home builders? Do they have a major renovation? Have they never done this before? Is their budget healthy enough? All of these things are kind of intuitive to most designers who've been doing this a long time. I'm just talking about putting a formal process around it, perhaps, um, that will help you clarify even faster who the right client is, and it will help you market to those people as well. Um, so for example, we we do an old-fashioned email marketing tool. And I know these days that doesn't seem as sexy and exciting for lots of people, but the reality is, is that your core network, so your current clients, your former clients, your showrooms, your artists, artisan partners, your tradespeople, your general contractors, your architects, they're all part of your network. So a simple email once a quarter, we do it once a quarter, so we only send out four a year. Our partners will take that and forward it on within their network. And we have had people contact us because they've gotten an email from a friend that was our newsletter, which is quite simple to put together, um, contacting us for a project. And that's perfect. Uh, and it allows us to highlight and showcase what we do well and allows to call our network for our clients. And we've been really successful with that strategy. So it's interesting. I mean, that goes into the CRM side, right? So mm -hmm. one thing I think most small businesses lack, and, and I can relate to this because I feel like I like this the most, is my ability to take leads that come in, even if they're not the ideal client, but at least create some sort of database or email campaign where if I have press releases or breaking news or events or whatever they may be that I can have these email blasts and keep this open dialogue and communication with my clientele that's out there. 
Yeah. You know, we have had clients or potential clients where I've spoken to them and we've had a lovely conversation, but we're just not the right fit for each other. I asked them in that conversation, we do an email newsletter four times a year. Can I put you on our list? I've never had anyone say no. And then we have had one of those non-clients forward it to a future client and have them contact us. So just because someone doesn't become your client doesn't mean they can't become an advocate for you, kind of a brand ambassador for you in a small way and um, bring you potential business. You know, and and you're saying some things that I think anyone listening, this is going to spark because what I do want to go back to, you said something that sparked with me and resonated with me is you said, Lululemon was the example you gave about someone that really understands their demographic and they market to that and their clothing markets to that. But here's the key. The key is that I, myself, Brad or Jennifer, we know who their audience is. So they've done such a good job building that demographic marketing campaign that not only is it targeted to the individual, but those outside of Lululemon know who they're marketing towards and know what the demographic is. And so once we've done that, then we've really conquered our ideal client. Yes. And uh, what can help with that is putting together some kind of brand guidelines and standards, whether it's visual or voice. So, you know, when you look at a brand and you recognize it, they have a tone of voice and they have a particular style of communicating with you. And it's the same in design. If you look at someone's work, I mean, I think the greatest compliment you can give a designer is when you see a project of theirs, it looks like them. You can tell it's their project without seeing anything written about them. And it's because they have such a strong point of view. And that's one of the things in our industry. If you do have a strong design point of view and people can tell your work, even without reading that it's yours, it's very compelling and it attracts that, that in and of itself attracts the right clients for you. I love that, Jennifer, because really, ideally, is that, as you mentioned, and especially where social media can enhance this even more, is if I see a project online that that's Space 10 in tears, and I know it's Space 10, well, that, that's the value, right? That's the brand ambassadorship. Those are the brand advocates now that you have fighting your battles, is that they could look at something and say, yeah, that's a Jennifer and Barbara job. Like, we, we see that. And so once you get to that level, it does create an opportunistic area where now you, you can fit that and vet the ideal client. You know, we... Uh we teach a class at a local community college for interior design, for professional practices, for interior designers. And one of the questions we get a lot is, that's great if you've been doing this a really long time and you have a body of work. <laughs> but if you're just starting out, like, how do I achieve that? How do I achieve um, or how do I get my point of view out there and attract the right client? And honestly, some of that starts with, you just putting together work that represents your point of view. Um, and social media is a great way to get that out there. You can highlight other designers who whose work you admire, but also visually cueing people, this is the type of work I'd like to do, even though this is not my work, this is the type of work I like to do. Uh, and the more that you can do that, the more it will build on itself and you will start to attract the right clients. Yeah, I like that because that that's another avenue of that strategy, Jennifer, is that you may look at the reciprocity or collaboration with other designers like like you are to say, this is really my our aesthetic. This is what we do. This is what we're passionate about. And so by having that same look or aesthetic or design intent, well, now the customer knows exactly what you're talented at and 
they may seek that because that's what's inspiring you. Yeah. I don't know about you, but we have occasionally just passed on projects for a variety of reasons, but sometimes it's really because I love talking to the person, the person's lovely, but they're their aesthetic and what they want to achieve is not something that we will do really well for them. And as lovely as they are, we just refer them to another designer within our network because they're going to have a much better experience because they want to do something that we know at our core is not our strength. I don't know if you find that in your side of the industry. Does that happen to you ever? It does. And I think it's important to think about because not only is it, uh, can we not provide the best value, but if we're not excited about it, if we're not excited about this build, the passion or our team or our energy is not behind it. And really, when you start thinking about branding and culture and environment, you, customer service is such a huge aspect. And if we're not passionate about it, we're going to lack or drop some of these balls that are super important. And and that's why it's even more valuable, not just from an aesthetic side, but if we don't have the energy, then the client will feel that. It's true. Um, we, in class that we teach, you know, they're young, they're younger designers, young, meaning new to the industry. And I have to pause sometimes in class and remind people that this is a service industry. And if you don't like being in a service industry, clients are part of the service that you're providing. <laughs> Granted, it's a, it's a luxury service, but it's still a service. Um, and it's really important that you do love who you're doing work for um, and that you love the project because you're right. It shows if you don't. Yeah. So let me talk about this. This is really interesting because I think you're probably the only designer I've interviewed that's actually speaking and teaching at the local college in your area. So what made you and Barbara say, we want to teach because that everyone has a commitment with family and work. And now you're taking a step further on the educational side. Uh, well, if you had told us it was going to be so much work when we started, I'm not sure we would have done it, to be completely honest. Um, but it has, we met, Barbara and I met at design school, and we did some volunteering at school that we really enjoyed, and we really wanted to give back in a small way, if that makes any sense. And we felt like we had something to say and contribute after being out in the field working for several years. And we felt we could bring a real world experience to the classroom and help the Bay Area grow and mature its design community. And so we were excited about all those, all those things. And that's why we did it. Now, that's amazing because one of the biggest challenges of any company, you know, whether you go to design school or I did construction management in college, you know, you learn a lot about the industry. You learn a lot about some of the specific um, flows of construction, for example, or, or construction law or construction real estate and scheduling and, you know, specifically plumbing or electrical, but you don't learn a lot about the business side, right? Which is the hardest part about what you do. And why, why in college that we don't spend more time teaching kids how to manage a budget or finances or run a company is beyond me. I mean, this just start at a very low, you know, uh, elementary level, if you will. It should be embarrassing, really. The, the the little information you get about how to read a PL statement um, in college. So we do that in our class. Um, I was going to ask that. So do you spend any time helping these young designers say, here's how you read a PL, oh, here's yes. how you forecast, job costing? Yes. And in fact, we uh, I spent many, many, many hours 
because we use a software program, like most people do an accounting software program. Uh, but at a college level, you don't really have access to that. So I, from scratch, in an, in basically Google Sheets, created a six-month rolling small business P&L. So I could roll it up and show them what a P&L looks like and then show them all the different inputs and costs of running a business, both revenue and expenses. And we, we have a big project where they create a budget, like a startup budget and a P&L for a small firm. So as a designer, what are some of the things that now that you're running your own business, you know, and you had this extensive background, but you started your own company, what are some of the things you didn't anticipate dealing with as a designer cost-wise that affect, you know, oh, I didn't think about that. I do have to pay for that. Or I do have to cover this overhead or this expense. Uh, I think because I had worked, both Barbara and I come from working at companies. She worked in a lot of tech startups. I worked at a very large medical company. I think we were pretty eyes wide open when it came to the expenses of starting a business. I think maybe the amount of money that we put into photo shoots probably yeah. <laughs> caught us a little off guard. Um, but that was remedied pretty quickly in our annual budgeting process. But I would say that. It's probably the one, and it's not just the cost of the photographer, as I'm sure you know, it's all the other costs getting the home prepared to do the photo shoot that we sort of underestimated in the beginning. Yeah, I can relate to that because when I think of, you know, it's, it's really important that we photograph our projects, right? That we can market those and showcase that. But we don't think about, for us, in construction, we finish the project, we do our punch list, you know, clients move in, we have our QCs. But the designer moves in their furniture. And right now with COVID, of course, furniture is delayed. So this takes time. There's a process to this. You know, so by the time we end up photographing, it could be three months after they move. It could be six months. And we have to get the house probably clean for them, get the windows cleaned, right? There might have to be some staging. Maybe you have to have a bowl of oranges or some flowers or floral arrangements, right? So these things are costs you don't think about in addition to that marketing dollars of just the photography itself. Do you ever partner with designers when you're doing photo shoots? You know, that's, that's a great question. And that's something we've looked at more now because in the past, it's been very much, we have our own photographer, we do it if the designer wants to buy rights. Whereas now we're looking at this, okay, this is a collaboration, architect, builder, designer, let's strategize to absorb some of the costs. We can build each other up that reciprocity. And so, yeah, that's something, especially now with video production and, and still photography that we want to encapture. We, yeah, we have done that a few times with uh, contractors or developers that we're working with. And it really is great because you, your photo shoots become much more extensive. So you get, you physically get more images. Uh, and if you're going to look to publish something, if you're photographing uh, a home just for your portfolio, it's a bit different than photographing it for a publication. And so for publications, as you know, you need a lot more photographs. And so that just takes more time. And if you're sharing those costs with a partner that you did the project with, it just helps mitigate those yeah. costs. Yeah. And to your point, people don't realize as well, most publications will not even entertain publishing your project unless there's a architect, a designer and a builder, right? They want all three. They don't want a, this to be a spec home. They also want the client involved. What's the client story? So there's some emotional engagement. And so to your point, when you're collaborating and the photographer can understand the passion of the designer, what, why did you create the space this way? Well, how did the client live? Why you know, what are this? And then the builder side, I mean, that collaboration really creates the story that we can now publish and market, right? That we've been speaking about. Yes. And they also want a landscape architect now. Yeah, they do. <laughs> we have the same. 
Oh yeah, it's a it's a four four team collaboration, but it does and um ha- really now most publications want complete renovations or complete homes. And yeah, they do, and they want it furnished. Yep, and they want it furnished, and they want exterior shots. Yep. during the day and at night and they want yeah. they want the homeowner in the shots if they can get it so it's um it's a big production if you just think about that the time it takes to do all those things and the energy and the money it takes i mean it's not crazy to spend you know five ten thousand dollars on a photo shoot that time yeah very easily and that's definitely something they didn't warn us about in college there's no doubt no. about that <laughs> they did not yeah yeah and so getting back to you know the branding side and, and you have a lot of experience in branding and PR. And so when you think about PR, it's, it's a little bit different, right? The public relations side, you know, so how important is that for a small company or f- we know it is for a large company, but how often it, should we be thinking about PR? It's so different. The experience has been so different uh, working for a small firm in this creative environment. I think being in a creative industry, you need specialized PR. It's a very different environment than working at a large corporation. You know, most of your PR is geared towards the financial sector often. And so you're dealing with analysts and um, reporters. And in our industry, you're dealing with writers and uh, other kind of creatives that may write for a living on their blog or um, in Instagram. And so it's very, very different. And so we knew really early on that we needed someone who specialized in PR in our industry. And as you know, we partner with someone that you, you know, well, and she's terrific. And we are grateful that we have her on our team. She's made a huge difference in our visibility in the marketplace and our credibility. So that's interesting. So the PR side, you know, looking at outsourcing some PR is, you know, we all understand to some extent the ability we have, as you mentioned, you know, to break down that that uh, branding architecture, right? And how we broadcast our messaging to our d- ideal client, and we can break that down. But the PR is a step above when you start thinking about not so much the personal brand, but in essence, that way, we're, whether it be podcasts or whether it be you know, uh, blogs, as you mentioned, or TV appearances or speaking engagements or speaking at the college. I mean, these are things where you can start building the PR side, you know, that bring value to your company. Yeah. So content marketing is a big part of our industry. All those things that you just talked about, right. Appearing on podcasts, um, doing interviews, things like that. Those are pieces that are so important because it's such a personal industry. Uh, and so, we we really have found that having someone who understands that and understands the landscape to put us in front of the right people has been immensely valuable. Just helping us understand how to live in this space and help us articulate who we are, especially in the beginning when we were starting our firm, was uh, immeasurably helpful. Even though we have backgrounds in this, it was undeniably important for us to do. And have you found any platforms to be more advantageous as a designer when you start thinking about the social media world and content creation? Where have you seen some of the most successes from either the time or money you've put behind your marketing strategy? So PR has definitely been kind of our number one important um, outlet. The other thing that we've spent a decent amount of time on besides Instagram, which I think is sort of a prerequisite these days in our industry, people use that platform often, is um, search and Google search 
and using SEO strategy to drive people to your content. Now, whether that's in PR, so interviews, articles, Instagram, your website, um, all those things, the SEO is kind of at the core of that. And we have found using simple small business Google tools to be one of the most effective ways to do that. And most of it's free. You just have to learn about it or hire someone yeah. to help you with it. Or <laughs> that's right. Either you have to know about it or hire someone that yeah. knows about it. And it's interesting you bring that up because I think most people don't even realize when you start thinking about Google, yeah. you know, they have an app, My Business Google. You can actually post on My Business Google, similar to your posting on Instagram and other social media. Additionally, you can go into Google Maps and you can register your business. And now you own your business. You have a login, you control your work hours and your address and operation, all that stuff. And put photos on there. And this is where people are finding you. And Google, I know, is very rewarding to companies that are, you know, are certified or verified because they're running their company. And then people can find you a lot easier, you know, being yeah. on their platform. Yes. Google rewards you for using their tools. I mean, for yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse, you're rewarded by using them. And we have found uh, doing those postings that they allow you to do has really increased our visibility in search when people are looking. And then you need to have some kind of call to action when you're doing posts. Instagram is a bit different, right? You can just post how you're feeling and what you're thinking that day. When you're posting on Google, it's always great to have some call to action, allowing some link to take people somewhere where you want to direct them. And so it's a bit more, I don't want to say strategic. It's just different uh, when you're posting on Google. But if you use those tools properly and do updates on your business through your kind of business, um, portfolio, your dashboard on Google, it can be really helpful for search and it can really drive it up and you're ranking up. I love that you share that, Jennifer, because when you start thinking about how we use these different platforms, right, we have to understand the demographics. So our messaging may be a little different. I mean, we could use a lot of the same content, but the way we broadcast that or put it on LinkedIn is different to YouTube, is different to Instagram, Facebook, right? The dynamic's different. We have to understand the clientele that's on those platforms with that messaging. And as you mentioned, with Google is by accessing and having that information, you can see those analytics. You can see how are my blogs doing, that SEO content, which is now driving. You know, it's amazing. I, I, there, there's some videos we did. Uh, we did an ICF project and we put some, we did a blog about it. We did some YouTube. And of course, YouTube owns <laughs> Or is owned by Google. So this yes. stuff speaks. So it does help when people are searching ICF and now AFT comes up. I mean, this is where it, it gives you a little cheat sheet, if you will, as you mentioned, into the marketplace. Yeah. Now, if you just attach some metadata to that on your website or in Google with hashtagging, you'll get even more. And give them a call to action so there they do something yeah. about it. Send them somewhere, right? If you're going to yeah. send them to your website, you need to have something to say to them. And that's where connecting your kind of marketing strategy to your ideal client. And so that when they get to your website, it should speak to your ideal client. It should be what they want to see, what they like to hear, how they talk. It should be all those things like your voice and your kind of point of view should all come through on your site. I mean, I know it sounds old fashioned because everyone goes to Instagram and they should, but people ultimately will end up on your site or I should say, our clients ultimately end up on our site because that's what we've <laughs> kind of driven them to do. Some, I know a lot of designers that actually do a lot of direct messaging through Instagram and get clients that way. It's not our core demographic. We get a little bit of that, but not a lot. Most of it's done through our website. 
I love that. It's interesting because a friend of mine, Jason Black, with Artisan Signature Homes, they build there in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And he started a podcast many years ago. And I remember asking him why. And he said, Brad, I started the podcast because what I would do is I would take the text and script of our conversations, put it, you know, in text and then put it for SEO, put it as a blog. And then it's that word script, right? That's drawn people back to the company. Yes. <laughs> yes. I would totally recommend having an expert on that come on because it is, it's really fascinating and it can make a massive difference in your search um, and drive clients. We had, um, we had some metadata that was when we were first starting um, that we realized just maybe a couple of years ago, wasn't the right metadata. So we changed it. And it actually made an impact. We got better clients, better results kind of coming through our door. Just because we changed literally the key search words in our metadata. Yeah, which is really important. I I know we could speak at length about SEO and metadata and the value there. And, you know, it can be really costly. I mean, I I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, depending on how much attention you can hire firms and they could really be creative on, on how you're sponsoring that certain ad text and to drive that search engine optimization, which is the SEO we're discussing and to drive people to the website. But, but there's other avenues where you don't have to spend a ton of money and you can still, you know, capture on some of that information you're putting out there. Yeah. I can't, I can't recommend enough doing the posts within your Google dashboard. It is one of the things that has really made a huge difference in our rankings and it's free and you can do it. It's just like posting to Instagram. It's almost easier. So do you use the app for that? Do you use the website? How are you posting to the Google dashboard? Yeah. So, um, when you're lo- if you're logged into Chrome, right. It, when you search yourself, it comes up that you're the owner of this business and you should immediately over on your right, it, it literally asks you, do you want to do a post? <laughs> you just click yeah. on that and it's like posting on Instagram. You can put metadata in it. You can um, put an additional URL. You can put imagery, you can put video, like it's completely up to you and post it. They review it before it goes live, which I think is sort of not good and bad, but they review it and it's usually delayed. And then they will send you analytics on that post for weeks and weeks to tell you how it's doing. And then you can compare it on your dashboard, how one post did to another. So I know now these kinds of posts do really well. These other posts haven't performed as well. And so now we do more kind of more informational, more directing posts on Google versus on Instagram. We more talk about our inspiration or we showcase our our um, products that we're loving, highlight artists that we're working with. And on Google, it's more about work that we've done, more construction work, to be totally honest, more renovation work. That seems to drive more traffic. Now, we're super excited to welcome one of our new sponsors to the podcast, Pella Windows. And this is even more exciting because we use Pella in so many of our projects, nearly all of them. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their they're company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra-contemporary, historical preservation, and 
large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. And now let's get back into the episode. I love that you shared that. I mean, that's such valuable information for those listening because any company that's successful, you know, you have versatility, but you're also very targeted. You're very strategic in what you do. And so, as you mentioned, you're going to understand the Instagram platform. And then now with Google, you can go in and you can actually post and use different terminology and keywords that will draw people back to your page. Yeah. And we, so for us and every firm is different, right? For us, since this is a second career for both Barbara and myself, we really wanted to stay local. We traveled a ton earlier in our life and we just decided that we wanted a firm that was based really locally. And so that has driven, that drove kind of our ideal client description and it has also driven our marketing strategy. So we're more focused on local press. We get so excited when we get good old fashioned local press than when we get placed in like the Wall Street Journal. It was exciting. But really, we were so much more excited when we had a feature in a local magazine because it it gets dropped in all the right homes. And so for us, that's better. I love that you share that because so many times we get caught up in whether it be the notoriety or the award side where, you know, I want to get published in Wall Street Journal or whatever these national publications, whereas understanding your strategy and lifestyle, you know, I want to work near home. I want to be in our area. Well, let's cater that messaging. Let's get published locally because that's even more viable. Although Wall Street Journal's great, we can put it on, you know, it's the PR side. We can put it on our website, it shows credibility. But, you know, the key is we want to be here because this is really what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. The the feature in the Wall Street Journal did not drive any new business, but the feature right. <laughs> in the local magazine brought in three new potential clients. And so it is, you sort of have to decide as a person and as a business, what's important to you. And for us, we realized really early on that we wanted to be local, wanted to be experts in our area. And so we focused most of our energy on local press. I love that. And then getting back to the versatility side, I know you've done some incredible projects there, uh, you know, in Northern California and also with ADUs, you know, and most people don't even know what an ADU is. So explain (laughs) to us what an ADU is. Uh, An ADU is an accessory dwelling unit. It is uh, becoming more and more popular in California, just generally due to the housing shortage. It was developed. It's kind of a new fancy way of saying granny flat or in-law unit. Um, But accessory dwelling units in California have become easier and easier to build in the last decade, even easier even in the last 24 months. Uh, Permits are less expensive than the normal permitting process. They're faster. Uh, they have some restrictions. You have lot, I'm sure you know all this, but lot restrictions, size restrictions, uh, and they need to be, they don't have to be a standalone unit, but they have to be a fully functioning unit. So it needs a bathroom and a kitchen um, and general space. But uh, we are seeing a huge uptick in our area. We've done four in the last 24 months, 18 months which is a lot for our area and uh, it's exciting and they're fun. Usually clients are more free when doing an ADU because they're not in that space all the time. 
And so they've been really, really enjoyable. Well, it's interesting because anyone that understands construction right now, especially with COVID, it's really slow to get a permit. We're really struggling in Arizona with our municipalities and our engineering teams and to get stuff approved. I know in California, it's even more complicated because you have building codes and legal things that are a lot more specific than other parts of the country. So it's even difficult. So this is another way around that where you're still flourishing as a business and helping your clients and goal and you're landlocked. I mean, the reality is in the barrier, especially in other parts of San Diego where I grew up, it's landlocked. And so you're limited anyways on what new construction to allow, new traffic coming in. And so this is a way essentially to still um, optimize where you live, but not go through some of the red tape you may have to otherwise. Yes. And um, since they have sort of reduced some of the permitting fees to build ADUs and made the permitting process a little bit faster for them, we are seeing people build them for a variety of reasons. I mean, they originally were intended to be additional residences for people, but we are also seeing our clients use them, especially during COVID as work from home offices. We've seen them used as guest suites, guest spaces, full-time rentals, um, gyms. Like we've seen kind of the whole gamut when it comes to how the ADUs are being used. And most of the time we're designing them in a way so they can be multi-purpose. People want extremely functional and versatile spaces. Uh, they don't want it just typically as a like a full-time rental. At least they want the option for it to be all those things. <laughs> So that's interesting because I was going to ask any idea what the incentive is for the municipality there locally to incentivize ADUs, you know, because they're low in permit fees. So there has to be some sort of incentive. And is it because maybe it's less traffic if people are working from home or companies can now outsource and, you know, change that footprint, right? That carbon footprint, if you will. I'm sure it's all those things. It's also affordable housing. Really, yeah. at the end of the day, that Bay Area has um, a real issue with affordable housing. And so I think ADUs is a way to help. It's one of the levers I'm sure that um, the local government is using to reduce housing struggles. And those are a lot. I mean, it is yeah. very expensive and it's tough for anybody, especially when you need, it, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we have Google or Apple or some of these big companies and there may be some executives, but the reality is any society has to function. I mean, you still have to have restaurants and small businesses. And, you know, some of these, when the cost of living becomes too high and you, you can't pay everybody, you know, $500,000 a year. So there has to be some offset there for people to still survive and, and keep the economy striving. Yeah. And it's really exciting. There are, are even some prefabricated ADUs that people are using and then finishing the inside. Like it's, it's a very exciting time for, um, the ADU kind of community, the small tiny house living community. Uh, and it's exciting to be part of that in the Bay area. That's awesome. And so now the fun part is, so you have a partnership, which is always challenging, you know, you and Barbara teamed up and what's really difficult to most partnerships is understanding that baton, who's responsible for what and what each other's good at and how do you communicate and work through all the complex projects that you do. So how have you built that relationship with Barbara and you two to figure out, you know, the handoff? So we, like I said earlier, we met in design school and we did a volunteer project together where we worked together as a team and that went really well. And we realized in that process that we had complementary skill sets. We had the same point of view because we've had similar career paths 
before we got to this point, but we also realized that we're very different in our strengths. And I think that is what attracted us to each other. Um, so Barbara loves, uh, details, construction details. She's very, very good at it. She also worked at a lot of startups. So she has really great business acumen and she, uh, is a workhorse. It's astonishing the amount of work Barbara can do in a day. I'm constantly blown away. Me on the other hand, I, (laughs) I'm here talking to you. Um, I enjoy the sales process, the client management process. I enjoy the sourcing process. Um, and I love anything that has to do with uh, people. So we make a nice sort of compliment to each other. Yeah, that yin and yang is super important for any successful partnership. And and I'm curious, you know, with both of you having such success in the corporate world per se, like what, how how did that communication even come to fruition where you and Barbara are now speaking and saying, okay, let's join forces, let's do our own thing. It's time. Yeah, I think we realized that we were very much at the same place in our life and uh, wanting to do something different and recognizing we had each worked in a corporate environment long enough to know what we were good at and what we weren't good at and recognizing that we really wanted to do this with someone else. Uh, and then realizing that we had strengths that were complementary and not the same, uh, and things that she loves to do are not necessarily things that I enjoy and vice versa. And so once we realized that and we approached starting a business sort of the same way and we did all the right things, we, hired an attorney. We put together an operating agreement, which is essentially how you're going to get divorced before you get married. And, uh, (laughs) it's true though, right? Like having a business operating agreement is one of those incredibly important things. It talks about how you're going to dissolve a business if, if you are going to do that someday. And so we just really came at it from the same point of view. And it's been a very rewarding partnership. I'm really glad to have her in my life through this journey for sure. Well, it's interesting you said that because most people ask, I want to start my own company. Where do I start? Where do I go? And especially if you're involved in a partner, when you start thinking about that business operating agreement, as you mentioned, it's a clear definition of how we get divorced before we get married. So what is the value? I mean, you know, whether it be a business plan and understanding no one's going to perfectly design a business plan as you're trying to figure out ideal customers and what we're good at and scope of work. So, you know, what is some of the specifics of that business operating agreement? Is it Salary, is it stock ownership? Is it scope of work for each of you? What does it entail? Uh, so our operating agreement consists of what kind of business we're going to have. So we have an LLC, for example, uh, a partnership LLC. And then it talks about how the business is going to be incorporated and function from a legal standpoint, not necessarily an operational standpoint, if that makes sense. And it's, you have to have officers in that kind of business. So each one of us is an officer and it just talks about how the company has been formed legally and then how it will dissolve and how you will dissolve it uh, and how the shares or partnership ownership works. Um, And all those things are different depending on the type of company that you form. And then it just talks about how you'll dissolve the business if and when it comes to that point. So it's not I so much that. the day-to-day operations. Sorry. 
Yeah, which makes sense. No, that's perfect because, I mean, very fortunate. I mean, this is the ideal way, right? You and Barbara form up and you have this great relationship. And set yin and yang, as you mentioned, where we understand each other's roles and we work together seamlessly. You know, but the reality is there are some partnerships that go sideways. And I've spoken to a lot of businesses where they've had issues or they're not speaking to their partner and they're trying to figure that out. And it, had they not designated officers and protocol you know, if we got to this point, it makes it very difficult to come to some solution, you know, or, you know, to at least save the company if possible. Yeah, it all comes down to finances, how you're managing those finances, uh, what the distribution of those finances will be, how you will dissolve um, equipment. All those things are like incorporated in your operating agreement. And I'm so grateful we have it because it just makes things simpler. It does. And then the company side, the SOP or the, you know, the procedure side, you know, I'm sure you had some understanding, okay, this is what I'm good at. This is what Barbara's good at. And we're going to, you know, start working through this. How has that evolved? Do you have an official uh, document that you update or is it just more, we know what we're good at and we're going to continue to designate certain tasks to each other? So I, the company I worked at before this was a medical device company. And so we, live and die by SOPs in that industry. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. So I am very familiar with SOPs. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we do have some operational documents and some policies and systems that we use. So we implemented a project management system, accounting system. They're in one, which was really helpful. And then we have just some standard standard operating procedures when it comes to things like AutoCAD and file management. And I created a lot of documents around the sales process. Um, Barbara created a, a brand book. So we have some standard operating procedures, um, even though it's just the two of us, uh, which has been really helpful. And it also helps if we get off track, it helps us kind of realign. Like usually when something <laughs> goes wrong, it's because we ventured away from our typical process uh, and we've learned that the hard way. And so we really try to stick to our guns now. And that also comes down to the ideal client. If we get a project come across our desk that sounds really exciting, but there are just one or two things that don't fit our ideal client before, you know, early in the day, we may have taken that project. We don't take those anymore. Yeah, I love that you shared that because I think back on our experience and we've been very adamant, you know, with our design community that I will not do a project unless we have an interior designer. And I've been adamant. I speak about that all the time. And it's funny because as you go back, I look, and this is three years ago, we started a project. They didn't have a designer. We wanted the job. We said, let's do it. We get into construction. We're six months into it. And I'll see Jennifer, it was a complete disaster. I mean, I lost so much money. It was so stressful. It was a horrible experience with the client. I mean, it, everything that could go wrong went wrong and it was painful. And so, as you mentioned, it's really important to understand at least some things that you should have as protocol. And it's real easy for me now when I sit down with the customer that says, hey, Brad, I think I know what I want. We make decisions quickly. I'm like, no, if you know how to design or my fees going way up, this is not going to work. Trust me. And I can give them 5,000 experiences and life lessons why it doesn't work. Uh, you know, so it's interesting that you bring that up. It's really, really true. Like once you know your lane, and, and it takes time as you start this industry to figure out your lane, but once you know your lane, you should stay in your lane. And that's not, that's not a bad thing, right? You can still be incredibly creative and do amazing projects in your lane. 
Um, because as you just said, it only takes one really bad experience where it's costs you a ton of money. It costs you your sanity. It's you don't sleep at night. It's exhausting and it's not fun. And I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't change careers for this to not be fun. (laughs) And when you talk about sanity, I mean, it's true because even if you have 10 projects that are going amazing and you have one that's just, you're losing your sanity and it's driving you crazy. I mean, it really sours. I mean, it's a tough industry. Anyone that knows it's been in construction and design and architecture, it's a very hard business. And we're relying on so many people and suppliers and factors outside of our control. And it's really hard for to convey that to the clients. And so when you get a bad experience, it can really make it difficult emotionally and physically and the health-wise, financially, the company. And it also takes away from your uh, nine other great clients. So mm-hmm. think about that, right? You have nine other amazing clients that you love and you want to do really great work for it, and you're pulled away from them because you're all of your time, because that's really how it works, right? When you get a really project that's not right for you, it sucks all your time. All your other really amazing projects get left behind, and then you yep. drop the ball there and it's, just, it's like a snowball. It's like a big, giant, well, bad snowball effect. It is, but there's there's a lot of value in leadership, as you're mentioning, Jennifer, because when you start thinking about, this is why it's so important to understand your ideal client. It's so important to vet your client properly. It's so important to understand how to stay in your lane in your process. Because when you think about leadership, any company, and I've, I've heard a lot of people speak about this, where they'll say, uh, let's just speak about in the corporate world. They'll say 10% of their employees are awesome. They'll do everything. They'll go the extra mile. You, they don't have to be micromanaged or anything. They know. Then you have 80% that, you know, they need motivation. They, they'll come, they'll do, but there's certain things you have to, you know, bring them along and, you know, to help them and motivate them. But then there's 10% of your employees that you're spending 90% of your time. They're issues, they're creating problems. And and that's in any aspect of life, like it's that way. And so it's very similar to clients where, as you mentioned, you know, we have 10% of our clients that are golden. I mean, the perfect client. Then you have 80% that are good. You know, as long as we deliver and we do our expectations, we do what we should do, then you got those 10% of clients that eat all of our time and take the sanity out of my entire staff and myself. And that's why it's important that we understand you know, what we're doing here. I think it's really great that you said that you don't take projects without a designer. I, I think that is amazing and kudos to you because it is, I appreciate contractors who really know what they do well and they have a process and they like being part of a team because not all contractors enjoy that, right? Like you have to, I always tell this to our students, you have to figure out what kind of design you are and what kind of projects you want to do. And then you have to go out and seek architects, contractors, and other partners that also like to do those types of projects, because that is where you're going to have the most success and the most joy in doing your job. So how's that been for you? Because I know when I speak with a lot of designers, that is one of the hardest things is finding contractors that see the value in what they do. It's... Well, it's really hard. I think when you when you get to a certain level of projects, like we're talking about, it gets a little easier. You find contractors like yourself who really want to work with a designer because they understand that it actually makes their job easier when all mm-hmm. the details are done in CAD <laughs> with dimensions uh, that you can easily execute, right? And so when those things aren't done, it makes it more difficult. So we tell students all the time, when they say, it's so funny because you say, this is what a contractor wants. They want every single possible detail that you can possibly think of. And then 10% more is what we say. Yeah. 
<laughs> because you think you've covered it and you haven't. Um, and then they don't always believe us the first time. And then we have a contractor come and speak and we have an architect come and speak. And then they realize they ask those questions and they say the exact same thing. I think people don't realize, and even clients don't realize initially in the beginning, how much detail work there is, detailing work there is in drawings. And it's a, it's a massive, it's a, it takes a massive amount of time. Yeah, it is. And, and that's really what's difficult is, you know, most contractors that I speak with it, when that light clicks, right? When I speak to them, I'm like, it is so much easier. If you have a good designer, I can price the house more efficiently. I can price it correctly. I know exactly what's going into it. I mean, how many of us want to go build a house without any plans? I mean, it's you can't be successful if you're designing footings and a foundation as you go. It doesn't work. Well, it's no different. You know, if I have a design book and I know where the floor outlets are and I know where what appliances are selected and the cabinetry layout, you know how fast and efficient I can be and I don't have to do things twice? Yeah. And I don't have to call my vendors and stress them out on my suppliers. I mean, it's very calculated. Not that clients and designers don't make changes. We all do, and that's fine. But we at least have a template and a game plan where my building schedule on a 16-month build will probably be 14 months because, which is better for me. It's, you know, it's better for my sanity. Oh, it's better for all of us. And just because you detail everything, if you're working with a good partner like yourself, everyone understands that like sometimes you'll go stand in a space and what you've designed in a small area or some detail and you all look at it and you think, okay, you know what, now that we're standing here, we think we should alter this, this, and this. When you have a good team in place and you have detailed plans and then you can pivot and make an adjustment, it actually makes it easier. So in our experience, even though we detail everything, everyone recognizing that there's going to be 10% aha moments is beneficial and helpful and it makes the project richer and better at the end. Oh, so much so. And so for you, you know, Jennifer, when you're looking at design, what is your favorite aesthetic or project? I mean, do, I, I know you work on the ADUs, which is amazing, but you know, when you start thinking of your ideal client, ideal project, you know, what gives you inspiration and energy? So clients really give us inspiration and energy, um, the right client. We have a couple of really amazing clients right now, and it is so fun and rewarding. So for us, we love something that has uh, clean lines, but is also warm. We use the phrase warm, modern all the time in our office. When people ask us to describe my point of view, we always say it's warm, modern. It's warm and inviting and family-friendly, um, but it's modern in line and point of view and layout typically. And so I live not far from the ocean. So light, <laughs> natural materials and colors, things that patina over time and show history are all things that we really love, kind of all wrapped in a modern aesthetic. I love that. And you are a little spoiled working by the ocean, I will say, because... <laughs> You know, the sound of the waves and the view of the ocean. I mean, and when you can design around that and bring in these natural, clean, you know, modern elements, as you mentioned, I mean, it's it's a match made to heaven, no doubt. It's very inspiring, for sure. Yeah, I love that. So 
Well, this has been so fun, Jennifer. I mean, you have just so much information and it's amazing what you're doing for the industry and for, you know, speaking at the college and training our younger generation. I mean, it's so incredible. So what, what else do you have that's upcoming and exciting for Space Ten Interiors? So we have several big projects going on. As you know, big projects can take years sometimes. So we're in the middle of some really exciting projects. We have a couple of new projects in Tahoe that we're very excited about. This is probably the furthest outside of our area that we go. Um, and I'm just going to put it out there. We have always wanted to do some small commercial work and we have not done any yet. So I thought I would take this moment and opportunity if there are any local businesses that want some help with their office space or a small restaurant, we're here. We want to work with you. It's fun. I love that you said that, you know, we're fortunate to do some small commercial and we'll have to keep that in mind too, or there's opportunity. It's fun. Like it's so different. People always ask, what do you like better? Well, it's just different. I mean, there's a lot of fun, as you mentioned, when you're designing someone's dream home and their beautiful custom home that they've, you know, that they're going to be living at, but there's a different mentality to someone's business, you know, that they're living at a majority of their time, but costs are different and things of value are different. So it's just a different mentality, but it's fun. I do enjoy the commercial. Yeah. Uh, well, we're excited to try it. So if you're out there, keep us in mind. Well, that's fantastic. And where can our listeners find you? Yes. Uh, Everyone can find us on Instagram at Space 10 Interiors uh, on our website, or you can find us teaching at Kenyatta College in Redwood City in the Bay Area. Well, Jennifer, you've been amazing. I can't thank you enough for making time for us today. Thank you. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.